the word of God where it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground. Everything that has the breath of life in it, I will give every plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of tree grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden there was the tree of life, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of the Hevelah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. 
But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused a man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Thanks, God. Well, uh, last year on uh, Four Corners, Kerry O'Brien introduced a story with these words. You don't set out to measure these things, but I can't think of a more powerfully poignant story that I've introduced than this one. It was the most important story that he had introduced in his entire television media career. The story was about transgender children, two boys who wanted to be girls and a woman who had become a man. We live in an age of gender uncertainty uh, and of gender fluidity. The LGBTQ movement is all about gender. Uh, Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer are all about challenging the lines of gender. But even before the rise of that, feminism in the 60s and the 70s redefined, recast what it means to be a man or a woman. Well, in that climate, in that climate of uncertainty and change, what does the Bible have to say about gender, about being a man or a woman? Uh, If you're not a Christian, let me say up front that you may not agree with some of the things that I'm going to say this morning. Uh, But I hope that at the end of the day, that at the end of our time together this morning, that you'll at least understand more clearly what it is that the Bible has to say. And possibly that you'll also see that being a man or a woman is not something to be challenged or blurred, but is actually one of the great gifts of God. Well, Genesis 1 and 2 that Ben read gives us a picture of what it means to be a man or a woman. But the picture that it gives is not a picture that, uh, of gender developing through history, but it's a picture of how gender was part of the world that God created. Well, what does uh, Genesis have to say about being a man or a woman? The first thing which it says, which Genesis 1 shows us, is that men and women are both made in the image of God. So verse 27 of chapter 1, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God made us male and female, but male and female both in the image of God. Uh, Last week, for those who are here, we looked at what it means to be made in the image of God. We saw that it means to be uh, set apart from the rest of creation, set apart from the rest of the animals. It means to be set apart 
to care for God's creation, to rule over it, to work and develop God's creation. It means to be set apart for a special relationship with God, knowing God, speaking with God, walking with God. But verse 27 tells us that men and women are both made in that image with those special privileges. Men and women are both equally valuable, both equally noble, both equally responsible for God's creation, both equally called to be creative and to develop God's world under God. It's quite remarkable that the Bible makes that one of its foundational facts because it's one of the most common errors in human history to treat women as though they are somehow inferior to men. The feminism of the last century was in many ways addressing a genuine problem. A wrong view that men were superior to women. It went too far, I think, by trying to erase any distinction between men and women. But there was, and there still is in many sectors of society, a low view of women. A view of women as somehow second class. In some cultures, women are the property of men to do with as they want. That's not the picture that the Bible gives right from the very beginning, right from the very first page, in fact. The Bible asserts that men and women possess equal dignity and equal value because man or woman, we are all, man or woman, we are all made in the image of God. Well, that's the first thing. But to say that men and women are created in the image of God equally is not to say that they are created identically. As I said, I think that was the mistake of feminism. But while Genesis 1 shows us that men and women were created both in the image of God, Genesis 2 shows us that he created men and women with different roles. So it's useful to know that Genesis 1 and 2 are actually two accounts of creation. It's not that Genesis 2 sort of follows on from Genesis 1, but they are both looking at creation from different aspects. Genesis 1 gives us the seven days of creation, the creation of the universe, the sun and the moon and the stars and all the animals and all that sort of thing, while Genesis 2 focuses particularly on the creation of people, the creation of human beings. If you like, the creation account begins again in chapter 2 verse 4 from a slightly different perspective. The two chapters describe the same thing but from different angles. In chapter 1, men and women are created in the blink of an eye. But in chapter 2, we see that the situation was a little bit more complicated than that. In chapter 2, there's, a, there's an order, there's a, there's a process that God goes through. God creates Adam to work and develop his creation. But in verse 18, we discover that God determines to create a helper for Adam. In verse 18, we read, The Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Literally, God says, I will make a helper according to the opposite of him. The idea is a kind of a complementarity, that sort of two, uh, two people who work together, part of a larger whole, who work together to fulfil the task that God has given human beings to work 
and develop his creation. Well, what are those differences between men and women? One of the interesting things about the Bible, I think, is that it seems to be so disinterested in making the gender distinctions that we seem to make as a society. Boys wear blue and girls wear pink. Actually, Raphael Nadal, I notice, now wears pink as well. And in fact, a century ago, it was the other way around. Pink was the colour of boys. Men fish, women knit. <laughs> and indeed, one of my favourite stories is, from the, uh, is the fishermen from the Aran Islands who used to spend the winters knitting their jumpers. And in fact, that's where the thick cabling patterns, that uh, a lot of the thick cabling patterns come from. If you know anything about knitting, you'll know what cabling patterns are. If you don't, you just have to live with it. <laughs> Women should stay at home. Men should go to work. That view actually has more to do with the effects of things like the Industrial Revolution where home and work became separate things. Before that, in, a, in an agrarian society, in a kind of a farming society, men and women would work together on the farm at home. There was no kind of distinction between the two. Men and women would work together in the family shop. It was only once uh, people started to have, having to go away to work that that distinction really came. You might know the famous description of the woman of valour in Proverbs 31. She's described as buying and selling land. She trades, she makes things, she sells them. She's a woman of industry. Uh, Even Christians write books to perpetuate random gender stereotypes. Two of the, quite frankly, silliest books going around, I think, are the pair of books uh, titled Wild at Heart and Captivating. And the titles alone, I think, tell you what the authors authors think are the key distinctions between men and women. Uh, According to Captivating, the place to begin and working out what it means to be a woman is not with the Bible, but with your desires. And apparently the desires of a woman reveal that the role of a woman is to be romanced, to play an irreplaceable role in a great adventure and to unveil beauty which sounds more like the plot of a Disney uh, fairy tale, to be quite frank, than anything that the Bible has to say. And men, apparently, want to fight, they want an adventure, and they want a beauty to rescue. <laughs> now, I don't... I mean, I don't want to fight a battle, and I don't want adventure, quite frankly, and I don't want a beauty to rescue. So am I then not a man? And therein actually lies the problem of those gender stereotypes. There are differences between men and women, but those aren't the differences the Bible majors on. I suspect that a lot, though probably not all, but a lot of the gender confusion in our society has more to do with the arbitrary gender distinctions that we make more than it has to do with the gender distinctions that the Bible makes. If a man talks too much, he's like a woman. 
But there are lots of men who'd like to talk, and there are lots of women who don't like to talk. And it's actually just unkind to perpetuate those kinds of stereotypes. If a man likes fashion, he must be gay. If a woman likes sport, she must be a lesbian. If a girl likes to play with cars, she must be a boy trapped inside a girl's body. The Bible is so disinterested in peddling those kinds of gender stereotypes. It's very interested in, in, in affirming the differences between men and women, but not like that and not along those lines. So what are the differences then between men and women according to the Bible? Well, when you look at the early chapters of Genesis and when you look at the New Testament and the rest of the Bible, uh, the way that the, uh, the New Testament writers take up these early chapters of Genesis, there are really only two key differences that emerge. Well, there's possibly more, but these are the, these are the two key ones. Eve, uh, in this Genesis account, is intended to help Adam. God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll create a helper for him. Eve is to help Adam. It's a, the task that God has given Adam is not a task that he can do on his own. So God creates Eve. And the most obvious part of the task which Adam can't do on his own is to fill the earth. He needs a wife for that. In uh, Genesis chapter uh, 3, Eve, we're told, the name that Adam gives to his wife, means the mother of all the living. With the woman of valour in Proverbs 31, a large part of her, her work is providing for her family and caring for her family. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul is talking about some of the differences between men and women, he says rather cryptically uh, that women will be saved through childbearing, which is a hard passage to understand, to be honest, but it at least means that there's something intrinsic to having children, something about having children which is intrinsic to women. Women seem to be geared for caring and nurturing and raising children, which is a painful truth, I think. And I think it's also the reason why it's so difficult for so many women when they're unable to have children. It might be because they're not married. Uh, It might be because they're medically unable to have children. It doesn't matter what the cause is, The pain is the same, and it's a legitimate pain, actually. When God announced the curse on human beings because of their rebellion, the main focus of the curse for Eve and all the women who followed her is pain in bearing and raising children. A pain which I think includes not only giving birth and the pain of raising children, but also the pain... I think, of not being able to have children. The desire to have children is not an inherently selfish desire. Like anything, I think it can become that. But more essentially, it's part of the purpose for which God created women. And so to miss out on that is deeply painful. And so it's okay to be sad about that. The Bible is full of women who cry out to God in tears because they can't have children. God has made women with that particular role of caring and nurturing in mind. And look, there are other ways that women can care and nurture. Uh, I 
I've moved and lived in lots of different cities, and in every city that I've lived in, I've had mothers who were not my own. <laughs> there have always been women who've looked after me. There have been men who've kind of kept an eye out for me, but it's never the same. And so there's a fulfilling role for women to have, I think, in caring for children and for people who aren't, aren't their own as well. The point is, it's, it's, it's part of the, the purpose that God created for women to have. And it remains a painful purpose in part because of the reality of sin and brokenness in our world. Well, what about men? When the New Testament takes up uh, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, the Genesis 1 and 2 account to speak about men, it almost universally draws one conclusion, and that is that since God created Adam and Eve in this order, that he created Adam first and, and Eve came later, there's a sense in which because of that, even though men and women are equal, there's still a sense in which men are to have a kind of a leadership responsibility So in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about a kind of a headship or a leadership responsibility there. Or again in uh, 1 Timothy 2, he talks about the same thing. That leadership ought to be a loving and a self-sacrificial leadership, the kind of leadership that Jesus uh, showed where he gave up his own life. It ought to recognise the gifts and the contributions of women to the family and to the church. But there is a leadership role which is hard to get away from, I think. Men have a special role in leading in the family and in the church, and women have a special role in nurturing and caring for families and for children. Those are the two main ways, I think, that the Bible distinguishes the complementary relationship of men and women. They're not the only ways that men and women complement each other. I think there are other ways too. But those are the two big ones that the Bible seems to focus on. And as for the others that people come up with, I think we have to be a bit careful about some of those things, the pinks and the blues and all those kinds of things. I think we have to tread a little bit carefully there so that we don't make things to be issues when they're not. The basic message is this. There's a sense in which men and women are designed by God to complement and fit each other, to work together. We need each other's strengths and weaknesses. The Bible doesn't enumerate what all those strengths and weaknesses are, but we need each other. That's the point. It's also worth saying, I think, that whatever God has made you, that's what God wants you to be. So the Bible rejects the idea of a person being born one gender and then trying to be something else. In Deuteronomy 22, uh, God says, A woman must not wear men's clothing, clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Although the Bible doesn't make all the gender distinctions that we might make, there's still something wrong, I think, with a, with a man pretending to be a woman or a woman pretending to, to be a man. And that's because God has made men and women differently. If God has made you a woman, then that's what God wants you to be. If God has made you a man, then that's what God wants you to be. Well, men and women are made in his image, but God also made men and women to complement each other. Finally, God made men and women for relationships. Well, all through Genesis chapter 1, there's this constant refrain, uh, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. But in chapter 2, 
for the first time, we get the sense that something's not right. Something is not good. Chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Everything else was good about the creation except for that point. It wasn't that God was caught off guard and that he sort of made Adam and suddenly went, oh, goodness me, I've made a terrible mistake. It wasn't that. The reason that that is there is to highlight that there's something deeply wrong with human beings being alone. I always think of those words from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. I think those are some of the, some of the saddest words ever written. And if you've been lonely, you'll know how true that is. To be alone in the world is not right. To feel lonely and alone is one of the effects of sin. Sin alienates us from God, and so we feel alone. Sin alienates us from each other, and so we feel alone. But that's not how God designed it to be. God made Eve, and through her, all humanity, so that we wouldn't be alone. But notice that before God creates Eve to be Adam's companion, he brings all the animals for Adam to name. At the end of the episode, we're told this. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. The solution to Adam's aloneness is not other animals but Eve, other human beings. I think that's worth uh, thinking about for a moment because I think there's a tendency for us as human beings to gravitate to relationships with animals rather than relationships with other people. To look for the solution to our solitude in animals rather than people. And animals are a great gift of God. Please don't misunderstand me. They are a great gift of God. And they can bring joy in a lonely life. That's true. But when we look to animals as a replacement for human relationships, there's a problem. Relationships with animals are so much easier, and I think that's why we gravitate toward them. Animals make fewer demands. But while Mowgli living in the jungle being brought up by animals makes a great children's story, it makes bad theology. Because we need other people. But not only does it seem from Genesis chapter 2 that we're made for human relationships, we're also apparently made for marriage. There's something about the way that Eve was made from Adam, from one of his ribs, that makes marriage so fitting. Eve was made from Adam so that marriage is not just their union, two separate people coming together, but a reunion. There's something about the man-woman complementarity that can only be fulfilled in marriage. There's something deeply satisfying, deeply fulfilling about marriage. But how do we understand that then in the light of the fact that not everyone marries? 
And how do we understand it in light of the fact that some people who were married are not married anymore? Whether it's because their relationship has broken down or whether it's because their spouse has passed away. And how do we understand it in light of the fact that roughly half of us who are married will face a time in our lives when we will not be married anymore because our spouse has passed away? How do we understand it if we were made for marriage? I think there's a few things to say about that. First of all, the Old Testament in the Old Testament, the relationship with God already is described in terms of a marriage. God's people are called God's bride. That idea really gathers steam as you move into the New Testament, where the church is described as the bride of Christ, a bride who will be presented to Jesus on the last day, radiant and spotless. And Revelation gives us a picture of the beginning of eternity as a great wedding banquet, the big reception of all eternity. Paul explains what's going on in his letter to the Ephesian church in chapter 5 when he says, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, he's quoting Genesis 1, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Paul is saying that just as a man leaves his father and mother and is in some sense united in some deep and powerful way with his wife, in the same way that they become a physical union, they become one body, one flesh, in the same way... Jesus has come to us and we are united with him, not in a physical union, but in a spiritual union through the Holy Spirit. We become his body. We become united with him. There's a sense in which we were made for marriage, but there's also a sense in which that is not the ultimate goal. In the new creation, Jesus says there'll be no marriage because marriage was always appointed to our spiritual union with Jesus. Marriage is a taste, it's a picture of something much greater. As good as marriage is, and it is good, and we were made for it, as good as it is, the joy that comes from marriage is just a fraction. It's just a drop in the ocean compared to the joy that comes from knowing and loving Jesus. Well, if you're married, that might sound like a bit of a letdown. But think of it like this. Think of the best moments that you've ever had in your marriage. Those days, those moments, when everything just seemed to be going right. When your hearts were so full of love and tenderness toward each other. When you were of one mind... One heart. Those moments, the Bible says, are glimpses of glory. As good as they are, they're just a taste 
of something even more precious, of knowing and loving Jesus, of being united with him through the Holy Spirit. And it's a great encouragement too to those of us who are single. It means it's not wrong to be married. It means it's not wrong to want to be married because we're made for marriage. But it also means that marriage is not the ultimate thing. If you miss out on marriage, you haven't missed out on living. Because marriage is just a taste of something so much better. And it's an encouragement too if your marriage has come to an end. For whatever reason, it means that though your marriage has ended, that's not the last word. You might feel some days like you're on the relationship rubbish heap. But actually that's not true. There's still something precious, actually something far more precious to be had. A relationship which is eternal. A relationship which is perfect. A relationship which isn't dependent on our fragile lives. And a relationship which isn't dependent on our wavering faithfulness. A relationship bought on a cross and paid in blood. God has made us male and female. He made us in his image. He made us to complement each other, to fit, to work together. He made us for relationships. He made us for deep relationships. He made us to know and love his son, Jesus. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for these foundational truths about what it means to be created by you as a man or a woman. Created in your image with value and dignity, nobility with purpose, created to live for you and to know you, created to work together, created with different roles. Lord, we thank you that your word gives us clarity about what it means to be a man or a woman. And Lord, as we remember that, we want to pray for those who struggle with things like gender identity. And Lord, we know as we look around uh, our world, our society, uh, that there are people who struggle tremendously with that. And Lord, some of us know those people who struggle with what it means to be a man or a woman. Lord, we just pray that you would help them to know the great truths of the Bible, the great truths of the gospel, that you created us to be men and women in your image, to love you and to serve you and to know you. And Lord, as we face the reality as living as men and women after the fall, as our roles and purposes are marred by sin, as the relationships that you intended for us are marred by sin, 
Lord, we pray that you would help us to live with great hope, with eyes fixed on our Saviour Jesus Christ, knowing and loving him and knowing his love for us. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.